Well, good morning. Good morning. How's this sound, Kamal? Can we hear it? All right. Warm welcome to everybody. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Ishii. Thank you, worship team, this morning. That song, Wake Maker, um, that's my message today. Do yourselves a favor. I don't know what kind of service you use to listen to music, but just listen to Waymaker this week. Our God is a Waymaker God. He is a promise keeper. He's a Waymaker. That is who he is. And I want to just call out very quickly to my, my beloved brother, Balaji, his wife, Temi, from Nigeria. I found out in researching this that the, um, that the group responsible for writing and composing Waymaker is from Nigeria. There's so many good things that come out of Nigeria. Jalaf rice, the Jegade family, their children, and the Waymaker song. I'm going to do this for a second. My wife always tells me to take a second and do it, but I never think about that. There is a, there's an old Danish saying. I don't like old Danishes, but I like old Danish sayings. <laughs> the saying is that eggs and oaths are easily broken. Eggs and oaths are easily broken. Our world today is in no short supply of examples of promises made and promises broken. Our politicians will famously promise you the sun and the moon and the stars to get your vote. And then they'll suddenly develop amnesia for the next four years as you wonder when it's going to come true. And corporations, they'll routinely pay for government fines for breaches of public trust and integrity only to repeat the same behavior the next year and just write it off as a cost of doing business. And sadly, so many marriage vows to love and to cherish are broken long before couples are parted by death. It's easy to get disillusioned by broken promises. And we can even fall into the error of doubting in God's promises as if he were a fallen human like we are. The big idea for today's passage is that God's promises are absolutely reliable, even when it isn't clear how or when these promises will come to pass. What we're going to see in today's passage in Acts 23 are four examples of God keeping his promises to the Apostle Paul, even when Paul seems tossed from one peril to another peril. By the time we leave this church today, I hope that we'll get a renewed sense of God's faithfulness and that we find comfort and courage and strength in Jesus' promises to you and to me. So we have a large passage to read through today because we're, we're also going to dip back into Acts 22. I didn't read the last few verses last week, um, and we're going to spend time on it today because I thought it was more appropriate and more contextual to, to spend it with Acts 23. Uh, so what I'm going to do to make this more manageable and, and hopefully more memorable is to briefly describe with you the people and the places and the problems in this longer passage before I read it in its entirety. So if you remember from last week, if you were here, the Apostle Paul, he's in the Jewish capital city of Jerusalem. In last week's message, his presence outside the Jewish temple sparked this massive scene, summoning a very angry mob around him, stirred up in opposition against him. 
intervening between Paul and his accusers is the Roman commander Claudius Lysias and a handful of his soldiers. Since the Romans can't discern the root cause behind all this mayhem, they arrest Paul and bring him into their nearby barracks to interrogate him through torture to figure out what was going on. At the threat of torture, we're going to see that Paul declares his Roman citizenship, which gives the Roman commander pause before and thinking twice before he carries out this Roman flogging. Instead of resorting to violence then, uh, the Roman commander demands that the Jewish Sanhedrin council have a special meeting with Paul again to discuss their charges against him and to decide whether or not what's happening here is a matter of internal Jewish uh, ruling by the Sanhedrin stewards or whether this is a state matter for the Romans to decide in their own tribunal. The meeting that they held quickly devolves into uh, chaos, violence. The Roman commander still has no answers, so once again he trots Paul out uh, from that scene and brings him back to the uh, Roman barracks for his own protection. And this is where the plot's going to thicken. While Paul is in protective custody in the Roman barracks, there are a group of um, frustrated Jewish vigilantes who are uh, frustrated with how long it's taken for the court system to prosecute Paul, and so they want to take matters into their own hands. You'll see that they make a pact with one another to not eat or drink until they are successful in killing Paul. They conspire with the religious authorities, the Sanhedrin, to draw Paul and his Roman captors out of his holding in, where he's protected in the barracks under the pretense of asking him more questions. And the plan, or the plot, the conspiracy, is to murder Paul while he's en route from the barracks to the place of interrogation. This is a conspiracy to commit murder. But little do they know, Paul's nephew, of all people, is miraculously within earshot of this conspiracy. He hears the scheming in real time. So the young man discloses this information to the Roman commander, who swears the boy to secrecy and then orders a large company, 10 times what the conspirators have, of Roman soldiers to take Paul out of Jerusalem under the cover of night to Caesarea, where he will transfer jurisdiction for Paul's legal trouble from the Jewish capital to the Roman capital uh, for the whole province of Judea. That's pretty much in a nutshell what we're going to hear about, but I want to read it word for word from the Word of God so we, we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us directly from His Word. I'm going to start reading now from Acts chapter 22, verse 24. You can see it behind me. You could read along on the screen, uh, and I'm, I'm always reading from the New International Version when I, when I preach. Acts 22, verse 24. Here we go. The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting him at, at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the Roman commander and reported it. He asked. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But Paul replied, I was born a citizen. Those who were about to interrogate Paul withdrew immediately. 
The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. And Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. And he said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias, he orders those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. At then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the very law by commanding that I be struck. Sorry, that was loud. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it's written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, born of Pharisees, descended of Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. You see, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees do believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders said, we have taken a, a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of winning more accurate information about this case. We are ready to kill him before he even gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard this, of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of his centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked for me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it you want to tell me? And he said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Then he called 200 of his, uh, excuse me, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 
and 200 spearmen, spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that they may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And then he wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Small parenthesis, does that sound true? That's not how I read events. Anyway, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case to him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to their barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that Paul was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. All right, that's the end of our passage. And again, I hope that little preamble will help retain the major events in our minds. Remember that the big idea for today is that God's promises are absolutely reliable, even when it isn't clear when or how they might come to pass. But how does that relate to our passage today? What promises did God make to Paul? I'm going to suggest that in the book of Acts, God makes two promises to Paul. The first promise was made about 25 years before the events in this passage and was communicated from the Lord Jesus through the disciple Ananias. I read it last week too. And here in Acts 9.15, the Lord Jesus said to Ananias, Go, this man Paul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. The second promise was made during the events of this passage in Acts 23.11. In the barracks, the following night, the Lord Jesus stood next to Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. These are two promises that God made specifically to Paul. Paul would preach far and wide throughout Jerusalem and all the way to the seat of the Roman Empire. And God would keep him safe and alive, at least alive, until he, he sees Paul through with that purpose. Now, hearing a promise from God is an amazing thing. But holding on to that promise and believing that it will come to pass, despite all evidence to the contrary, that's a very different thing indeed. Imagine how difficult it would have been for Paul to put his faith in Jesus' words when his fate seemed to be teetering Uh, between death at the hands of the Jewish fanatics and the religious order, or imprisonment and torture at the hands of the Romans. But as we drill deeper into the text, we'll notice how God's will and his purpose can use any individual and any situation to come to his desired outcome. Remember that song, God is a way maker. He will make a way, no matter how grim things may appear to our human perspective. Let's look at the first scene. Puts us back in the Roman barracks. 
where Paul is being prepared for flogging and interrogation. Why would the Roman commander jump to such extreme measures? Why didn't he just ask Paul to explain himself before resorting to violence? I'm not actually going to be able to fully explain that, uh, certainly not justify the commander's actions. I can take a moment to clarify and give a bit of context as to what kind of pressure he might, may be, have been put under, as well as what the law permitted him to do. We can put ourselves for a moment into the shoes or into the sandals, as the case may be, of this Roman commander, Claudius Lysias. Now, we have to, we have to take a note that Jerusalem had first been conquered by Rome in, AD, uh, sorry, in BC 63 by the Roman general Pompey. Controlling Jerusalem was integral to extending Rome's influence and growing its wealth over the entire province of Judea. But this didn't come without a cost to the Romans. In his famous work, The Antiquities of the Jews, the ancient historian Flavius Josephus, he describes the many challenges that the Romans faced over the decades in maintaining law and order and control with the conquered Jews living in Jerusalem. First and foremost, we know that the Jews, the Romans discovered that the, the Jews had very complicated religious laws that meant very much to them, more than the Romans could comprehend or care to enforce. And so they left the policing of the Jews, according to their religious practices, to the Sanhedrin, their religious, highest religious court, which would be led by a high priest. Now, leadership struggles within the Sanhedrin abounded all the time. It often involved manipulation and political maneuvering between the different Sadducee and Pharisee religious factions within the Sanhedrin. And it didn't help that the Romans often interfered and meddled in appointing or removing high priests to make sure that they were friendly with the Roman um, occupiers. Uh, it's important to note that, yes, Jerusalem was policed by the Sanhedrin, but Roman governance was done by the Judean governor, Felix. That included taxation of the Jews, that included installing a military garrison in Jerusalem, and that included the regular cultural differences that would exist between the Jews that lived there and the Romans who had their own culture and ways of being. This led to wave after wave of um, a popular unrest. Uh, by the time of Acts 22, this led to the emergence of a new revolutionary group of Jews called the Zealots. This group would ultimately spark the Jewish-Roman War not many years after the events of Acts 22, uh, from 66 to 70 AD. So what does this mean for us? For the Roman commander, this all added up into a formidable amount of political pressure for him to ensure that the city, Jerusalem, remained lawful and orderly, free of crime, definitely devoid of any political uprisings or uh, political uh, sentiments against the empire. And if he couldn't maintain law and order, if he couldn't quell any uprisings, guess whose head Caesar would be calling for? So imagine his perspective. He sees the tremendously volatile response Paul received on his arrival to the temple back in Acts 22. This wasn't just a mere skirmish. People were ready to murder Paul in the streets. Completely unacceptable behavior in a Roman-controlled city. 
Now, the commander assumed that the root cause of this strife was religious in nature because of how the Jewish community was. But he couldn't actually understand what was going on. No charge was laid that he could hear or understand. So he figured he would take matters into his own hands. And as barbaric as it sounds, Roman law made it perfectly legal for this commander to have someone flogged to extract information from them or to get a confession. If that person happened to be a slave or an outsider, what they would call an alien, someone who is not native to Jerusalem. And while Paul has received beatings in the past, he's been beaten by a rod, he's been beaten by a whip, he has never faced up against a Roman scourge. Now, according to New Testament scholar Ben Wither III, which is a very lofty and pretentious name, but he's an excellent, excellent commentator. This Roman scourge, which is a noun, it's not just a verb, but it's a noun. This scourge was often constructed with a wooden handle and with lead pellets or knuckle bones, but could also be made with wires with ends bristled. This instrument would be used on the subject's back and could tear flesh and so maim a person for life or even kill him if used repeatedly. So Paul's in real trouble here. This isn't just like a spanking. This is a proper beating. He doesn't have much time at all as the Roman soldiers stretch out his back to have a full surface area to administer this flogging. Now, where Roman law allowed for this to happen, as I said, to slaves and to aliens, absolutely would it have been forbidden for them to do this to a Roman citizen, particularly when that citizen didn't receive a, a court hearing, a fair trial, and a charge against them. The ancient Roman lawyer Cicero once said, to bind a Roman is a crime, to flog him an abomination, to slay him an act of murder. So suffice it to say, when the soldiers learn that Paul might be a Roman citizen, they all take a couple steps back before the, even before the commander ordered them to do so. Here we see God's inter... Excuse me. I think I forgot to read that. Yeah. Uh, in this scene, God keeps his promise to Paul by providing him with a legal status at birth that would spare him from Roman torture as an adult. This is God's way of making a way for Paul, the first of four that we'll see. Thank you, Keith, for moving on. Here we see God's intervention completely outside of Paul's control. He, God orchestrated something before Paul was even born that would come to help him later in his adult years. Let's move on to our next scene. Have you ever heard the expression going from the frying pan into the fire? That's what is pretty much what's going on with Paul here. He barely escapes this Roman flogging, and then he's expedited to an exceptional hearing of the Sanhedrin at the order of the Roman commander. As it stands, it still isn't clear, as I said to the Roman commander, what the specific transgression or charges are against Paul. Even though the Romans completely controlled Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea, they found it a matter of convenience to let the Sanhedrin decide on these types of religious charges. You know who went before uh, the Sanhedrin? Stephen, the disciple, went before the Sanhedrin. He didn't get a fair trial. He was stoned. Jesus went before the Sanhedrin. 
He didn't get a, a fair trial. He was crucified. What chance would Paul have? What fair trial could he expect? The Sanhedrin itself was composed of approximately 70 members. It included scribes, elders, and a single high priest selected from both the Pharisee and the Sadducee religious backgrounds. Now, according to Bible scholar Craig Keener, the Pharisees apparently had a little bit less power and representation at the council at this time. But the number of religious and philosophical arguments between these factions still made for extremely heated discussions. Not long after Paul declares he's on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, the situation quickly devolves into shouting and violence. Why violence? Verses 9 and 10 of Acts 23 tell us that there was a great uproar between the two factions. Members stood up and argued vigorously. The dispute became violent, and the Roman commander had Paul quickly escorted once away to the barracks for fear that Paul would be torn to pieces by the religious leaders. God keeps his promise to Paul in this case by taking advantage of the contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, make it impossible for the Sanhedrin to come to any kind of conclusion or judgment. For Stephen and Jesus before him, a trial to the Sanhedrin led to a, a guilty verdict and execution. But Paul's outcome was different. On this point, I've discovered a, a new commentator that I want to share with you. His name is Willie James Jennings. He, acts, he, he asks a very poignant question. Must zealousness or zeal always be aligned with violence? I've come to really appreciate Jennings' insights on the book of Acts. His commentary complements a traditional study of the passage with a deeply revealing take on the underlying social and cultural context at the time. He particularly looks at the world of Acts as a time of brewing revolution and injustice between diaspora Israel and the Roman Empire. And Jennings, he continues with this assessment of the situation. I put it on the screen so you could read with me. He says, something terribly tragic is being played out in the scene where theological disagreement has entered absolute brutality. This is where the integrity of theological disagreement uh, dis discourse collapses. It doesn't collapse in its coherence or its incoherence of the ideas or at the warrants for its claims, it breaks apart precisely at the place where fear becomes focused on just one person. And then hatred gives birth to desire to silence and destroy. This, he says, is the well-worn path of theological minds that must have their way. So utterly convinced of clarity that they listen to their opponents only to find an opportunity to shut them up or unleash violence on them. You see what I mean by this being a riveting commentary? It's absolutely exceptional. It's quite the condemnation that Jennings has for the Sanhedrin, and it's a warning to the present-day church, too, on how to wield power and influence over the vulnerable. Nevertheless, this is a situation that God has exploited. Once again, he has made a way to fulfill his promise to Paul, to keep him alive, and to carry both him and his gospel message along through Jerusalem and into Rome. We'll move into the third scene now. Back in the Roman barracks, Paul is left with nothing more than his thoughts and a Roman centurion to keep him under observation. Now, the following evening, Luke records another miraculous appearance of the Lord Jesus to Paul. 
after being kept from the angry Jewish mob outside the temple, spared from Roman torture, and free from any charges by the Sanhedrin, what, do you, what message do you think that Paul would have needed to hear from the Lord Jesus? The message he gets is this. Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so must you also testify in Rome. I interpret this two ways. Bad news and good news. Bad news, Paul. All these near-death experiences that you've been having in Jerusalem, you're going to have them again in Rome. But good news, I've got your back, Paul. Keep it up. I'm sure that Paul slept better with the divine encouragement and the reassurances that Jesus provided. And that following day, Paul got an unexpected visitor. We heard the story of how his nephew, his sister's son, somehow, miraculously, out of all people, what are the odds that he would hear this very specific plot from these Jewish zealots? Their conspiracy, which implicated the religious leaders, simply required calling another fictitious meeting of the Sanhedrin under false pretenses so that they can assassinate Paul during his prison transfer, just like some kind of... Uh, Hollywood gangster movie, you know. Earlier I mentioned all the different political and religious factions that are involved in this scene in Jerusalem. We have the Romans, we have the Sanhedrin, we have the Pharisees, we have the Sadducees, and we have the Zealots, and there's a sixth group I hadn't yet mentioned. This is a new group. If you can imagine, there was a group even more zealous than the Zealots because they were a splinter group an extreme splinter group that splintered off of the already extremist zealots. And they were called the Sicarii. The Sicarii were one of the earliest recorded groups of organized assassins in world history. Sicarii is the Latin plural for dagger man or dagger wielder. They were so uh, politically motivated to resist occupiers and to punish known collaborators that for them, violence was not a problem to achieve their ends because the official court system would take too long. This guy, Ben Witherington III, noted again in his commentary that these revolutionary-minded Jews considered some assassination as pious acts. And in history, Herod the Great had once executed 10 Pharisees who had formed such an association by oath for the purpose of killing him. Now, in this instance that you see, God keeps his promise to Paul by miraculously placing his own nephew within earshot of the conspiracy to commit murder. What are the odds, really, of Paul's nephew hearing this and taking action? This brings us to the last scene. Our passage culminates with a daring nighttime escape from this orchestrated attempt on Paul's life by religious assassins. Considering the many perils facing the political future of our Roman commander, he takes no chances. If the assassins that he hears are going to be 40 in number, he is going to assemble almost 500, more than 10 times, the number of well-trained and fully armed Roman troops, including infantry, cavalry, and spearmen, enough to repel an army of zealots, bandits, assassins, you name it. Paul should be safe. In this last scene, irony of all ironies, God keeps his promise to Paul 
he makes a way by surrounding him with the overwhelming force of Rome's own armed soldiers. The same state powers which condemned our Lord Jesus to death would be used to protect Paul. Jennings once again brings new vitality to this portion of scripture in his commentary where he writes, Paul travels away with the Romans from danger to danger, being led by the Spirit of God. Paul is in God's hand, not the state's power. The gospel news that the Spirit has called forth demands a response by both the state and the people of God. Together they are just caught up in the work of God, and the word will be spoken to both by one whose body has been made vulnerable in the presence of both. Paul gives witness to Israel and to Rome. We must remember the word of Jesus to Paul. Keep up your courage. The work of witness must go toward the state and toward Israel, toward Gentile and toward Jew. So there we have it. <clears throat> Acts 22 and 23, together they present a multitude of perils to Paul who faces mob justice, Roman torture, sentencing by a biased court, and a plot to assassinate him, all in one week. How was your week? <laughs> but God promised that he would use Paul as his chosen instrument to proclaim his name, remember? That was God's promise. And time and time again, we see that God delivered on that promise. He made a way, using everything from state bureaucracy to factional conflicts to chance encounters to military might. Our waymaker, God, always makes a way. What about us? What promises has God made to you and to me that we can cling to today? And while this isn't an exhaustive list behind me, I wanted to share eight what I call red-letter promises. In red-letter Bi red Bibles, the words of the Lord Jesus that he spoke himself are... are tinted, colored red. And so I call these red letter promises from Jesus made explicitly to you and explicitly to me. Number one, Jesus promises that he's the only way to God. I am the way and the truth of the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Second, Jesus promises eternal life to all who believe in him. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. That's a promise. Third, Jesus promises that nothing and no one can take his believer away from him. My sheep listen to my voice, Jesus says. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Number four, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. The fifth promise, Jesus promised us his abiding peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The sixth promise, Jesus promises his eternal presence with us. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Seven, Jesus promises that he has overcome the world. In this world, he says, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Lastly, Jesus promises to return. If I go and prepare, prepare a place for you, 
I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. These are the words of Jesus the, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He promises these things to you and to me. And even though we don't know how Jesus will fulfill these promises or when he will fulfill these promises, we can be certain, just like Paul, that we serve a God who makes good on every single one of his promises. He will make a way for these things to come true. And if you doubt that, we have an entire Old Testament and an entire New Testament that are bursting at the seams with God's promises fulfilled. Three things, and then we're done. Do you feel disillusioned today and overwhelmed by the rotten state of the world? Have you gotten caught up in doom-scrolling on social media, endlessly depicting global conflict, depicting climate change, corruption, and poverty, God's promises remind us that he's not only interested in saving individuals, he's also determined to restore all of his creation. That's a promise. Romans 8 tells us that all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. On this verse, beloved pastor and teacher Tim Keller wrote, yes, the whole universe is deteriorating and running down, losing more energy than it generates. Each moment gets older, faded, weaker, and more incoherent. But in God's new earth that he is creating, things are new, beautiful, strong, coherent, forever. Second, after hearing my brother Daniel Muirhead's testimony last week, do you feel as though God has not done anything in your life lately? Does God seem silent or maybe distant to you while others seem to be praying big prayers and lifting their hands up in great worship? For you, God's promises remind us that his presence, his purpose, and his plans for us are secured by his Holy Spirit and not by our feelings. In 1 John chapter 3, we read, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And this is no, how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And thirdly, maybe you're like me in some of the mental health struggles that I've shared with this church in the past. Do you feel anxious about tomorrow? Do you feel uncertain about your future, about your career, about your health, about your loved ones? God has promises for us too. He promises, his promises remind us that he never stops caring about us, never stops caring for us in the good times and in the bad, whether we are worried or whether we are carefree. In 1 Peter 5, we find this exhortation. It's explicitly intended for the young among us, for the less experienced, for the more vulnerable about us. The word is, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, 
because he cares for you. In closing, this is the last thing I will share. Thank you for your patience. It's from R.C. Sproul's introduction from his book on the promises of God. In his introduction, he writes this. The hardest thing in the world for the Christian is to live by faith rather than by sight. It's one thing to believe that there is a God and quite another thing to believe God. But living faith involves trusting the promises of God. Even when everything around us seems to testify to the futility of our lives, causing us to lose hope, we are in a covenant relationship with God. Therefore, we are people who live by trust in his promises. We break our promises to one another. We even break our promises to God. But God never breaks his promises to us. So be encouraged, Rosemount Bible Church. Our God is a waymaker God. He is dependable. His promises are dependable. And through them, we can have gospel change